But today we're going to continue talking about Jesus. Is Jesus a myth or was Jesus real? What evidence is there that Jesus actually existed? Now, as I'm probably going to do every Sunday, I'm going to start off with kind of a little introductory video. And so if you can give me about four minutes of your time and turn your attention to the screen, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. By claiming to be the God of the universe, Jesus created an identity crisis. Each of us must decide for ourselves, who was Jesus? Because if he's not God, how can we possibly explain his unprecedented claim? He certainly wasn't crazy, or joking, or lying. Let's consider five other explanations. First, maybe Jesus was misunderstood. Perhaps he never really claimed to be God. But the historical evidence says otherwise. Centuries before Jesus, God revealed himself to Abraham as the great I Am. So when Jesus said before Abraham was, I Am, his Jewish audience knew full well that he was claiming to be equal to God. That's why they picked up stones to kill him. And when Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man, mentioned in Daniel's prophecy, the Jewish High Court was well aware that he was claiming to be the pre-existent ruler and judge of the universe. As a result, they unanimously condemned him to death. No, Jesus wasn't misunderstood. To the Jews, his claim to be God was unmistakable. But what about this? Maybe Jesus was a legend. In the first few centuries after the real Jesus lived, his followers invented the idea that Jesus was God. Is this valid? Was belief in the deity of Jesus added centuries later? Or did the very first Christians believe that Jesus was God? Again, the historical evidence speaks loud and clear. The earliest Christian writers made clear reference to Jesus who is our God, Jesus who is both God and man, Jesus who is not a mere man but was God. So the idea that Jesus of Nazareth is God was not invented after the Christian movement began, not at all. Christians always believed it from the very start. So this explanation fails. But another way to try to make sense of Jesus' claim to be God is he was a clever political strategist. He falsely claimed to be God in the hope of focusing Jewish resistance against their Roman oppressors. However, in Jewish culture, claiming equality with God was not a good idea. In fact, it was a crime punishable by death. Jesus made it clear that he was not a political revolutionary, and the Roman government itself officially declared Jesus not guilty of inciting rebellion. So, this explanation doesn't work either. But is it plausible that the historical Jesus never even existed? No. In addition to the eyewitness testimony of the four earliest biographers, multiple Greek, Roman, and Jewish historians document the existence of Jesus, who is called Christ. 
In fact, there's as much documentary evidence for the existence of Jesus as there is for Julius Caesar. That's why the vast majority of New Testament scholars affirm that Jesus was an actual living, breathing historical figure. For those who examine the evidence objectively, all of these explanations fall short. But for the open-minded, there's at least one other option to consider. Perhaps Jesus was who he claimed to be. Unlike the other options, this explanation fits perfectly with the historical data. But it does have one major problem. It's not safe. Because if Jesus actually is God in human flesh, then ultimately your life is not your own. And true life can only be found in him. All right. Well, I don't have an awesome British accent or like that sounding voice to keep you engaged this morning. And hopefully <clears throat> we're going to pick up the pace just a little bit from that video. But that video covers a lot uh, in about four minutes that would take me probably, you know, 40 minutes to dive into. And so it launches us, launches us greatly into what we're going to discuss <clears throat> for the next few minutes. And I want to lay some groundwork. The first thing we have to come to grips with is did he exist? Did Jesus actually Exists. Now, last week we talked about the Bible, we talked about the reliability of the Bible, what that means for our life, and how we can know that we know that we know that what we're reading really is what was written. And so if you want to get up to speed, you can uh, go to iTunes and download our podcast and listen to the podcast from last week, or go to our website and listen to that uh, from last week, and you can get caught up on the New Testament and the Bible and the historical accuracy of Scripture but some of us here this morning probably will say, and especially the skeptics, they will say, and though uh, in a debate forum you would never do this to your opponent, they would say, well, you, you have to defend Jesus without the Bible. You have to defend your belief without the Bible. Well, that's like telling an atheist you can't use dinosaur bones, or, or I'm sorry, use, talking to an evolutionist saying you can't use dinosaur bones, etc., to defend your belief. And so you would never do that in an actual debate. But I'm going to go ahead and venture down that road and say, let's, let's take the Bible. I have never said this in church, and I will never probably say this again. But let's take the Bible and let's set it aside. And let's look at other historical documents. Did Jesus exist? You guys ready? Now, what I'm going to quote to you are just, I'm just giving you three quotes from three sources that we know are historically accurate and reliable. All right? And the first one comes from Tacitus. He is a Roman senator. Uh, for the Roman Empire. This is what Tacitus writes in his writing of history while he was alive. <clears throat> he says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So here's a Roman senator recording his own history during his lifetime. He says, this person named Christus suffered the extreme penalty of the Roman Empire. So there's one. You have a politician who says, this happened in my lifetime. <clears throat> Let's go to another one. Lucian, he is a Greek playwright and director. Now, Lucian is known for his uh, satire plays. He is known as being a skeptic. 
And Lucian writes this. Then too, their first lawgiver, talking about Christians, persuaded them that they are all brothers after they have thrown over and denied the gods of Greece and have done reverence to that crucified sophist himself and live according to his laws. Now, here is a guy who's critical. He is doubting. He's a director, a playwright, clearly not a convert to Christianity. And he writes, he says, and there are these people that believe in this uh, Christus guy, and they overturned all of the Greek gods. <clears throat> they denied all of our Greek gods, and they live according to this, the laws of this Christus guy. Right? And so here's another, this time not a politician, but a writer of plays and a producer of plays. <clears throat> and let's go to a third one, and then we'll stop with this. This is my favorite one in all of, uh, in all of history, uh, the writings of, about Jesus outside of the Bible. This is from Josephus. He is a Jewish Roman citizen. He is a historian and a scholar. And he writes this. He says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had him condemned to the cross, and those who had first come to love him did not cease. In other words, even though he was condemned to the cross, they did not stop loving him. And he appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now here's Josephus. He's a Jew who's a Roman citizen who's a historian. His job is to record history of the Roman Empire. And what does he write? He writes, there was this guy named Jesus who lived... And he was a man, if you should even dare put him in the same category as a man. Because he did things that defied humanity. And he died, and three days later he came back, and his followers still exist. They're still spreading the gospel. They're still spreading the news. Here are three people, right? One, one is a senator and a politician. One is a playwright and a director and a producer. The other one is a historian. Neither one of these three men are Christians. Neither, three, neither one of these three men are converts to Christianity. They actually oppose Christianity. Uh, two of them are clearly against Christianity. And yet they all record that Jesus existed. They all record that he was crucified. Now think about that for a minute. Right? You have three men from three different walks of life who have not converted to Christianity whatsoever. If you want to deny a myth, if you want to deny a legend, if you want to deny something that's not true, and you're against it, why would you even write that it happened? You wouldn't. That's not even logical. You wouldn't. And yet these men admitted that this happened. Think about that. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't write that down, right? If your own enemies say that you existed and that you did the things that were writ- written in here, 
then it must have happened. Right? Last week I mentioned, remember last week I mentioned, don't confuse non-neutrality, right, with objectivity. I don't have to be neutral to be objective. And we talked about that. Holocaust survivors and a friend who's a doctor who can still diagnose your problems and so on, right? Just because I'm biased does not mean that I cannot be objective and give you the facts as they are, right? And so here are three men who do that. What does that mean for you and I, right? So when I prep my sermons, like I told you last week, I asked myself, so what? What does that mean? So what does that mean to my natural life? What does that mean to me in my walk with Jesus? It means this, that never is Jesus ever, ever going to leave you without support. You might have a professor that you feel is out to get you. You might have a boss that you feel is out to get you. You might have people that you feel are out to get you or they hate your guts. Or you might have an ex-spouse who's out to destroy your relationship with your kids. It doesn't matter. Jesus is always there providing support whether you see it or not. And that's reason to give God praise this morning because you know that he's still going to be there. Amen? So... I would just encourage you, when Jesus says, or, or when, when the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, he means it. He means it, he means it, he means it, and he provides a plethora, yes, I just used the word plethora, of information to continue to provide support, provide support for us in our faith. That should be exciting. That, that should encourage us to say that when I read this, I know it's true. I know Jesus lived. I know that when he says he's not going to leave me or forsake me, he's going to be there for me. He's going to be present in my life. He, he really is going to be there. Yes, thank you. Somebody amen that. So now we have to ask ourselves, if we know Jesus existed, and we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know the historical Jesus existed, Now we have to battle what Jesus claimed. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Now now we have a problem. And here's the problem. Good people, morally upstanding people, don't claim things about themselves that aren't true. Otherwise, they're not good people. And you can't trust them. And they're liars. And they're, and they're trying to deceive everybody else, right? So what do we do with the claims that Jesus made about himself that he is the son of God? Who did Jesus claim to be? Well, as the video showed, one of those claims <clears throat> was that he claimed to be the son of man, right? This was the most common claim that Jesus made. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this. For even, he's talking about himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for us as a ransom for many. Now, who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. He says, I didn't come to be served, even though I created you, and I can just make you go away, and I control the universe, and I have all of this power. I did not come for you to serve me. I came to serve you. Let that just kind of soak in for a minute. The very one that holds our galaxy in place, the very one that holds your breath and holds your heartbeat says, I don't expect you to come and serve me. I want to come serve you. I want to love you. 
Think about that. Is that mind-blowing? It is to me. Because unfortunately, I know myself too well, and I know my sinful nature, and I know that if I controlled things, right, I'd be like, um, I want some root beer, so you go get me some root beer, right, and you go do this for me, and you go do that for me. Why are you looking at me like I'm the only one in this room that had, if I had that control, I'd be the only one doing that. Now, you guys know better than that, right? Look at your neighbor and say, you guilty, and you know it. Look at your other neighbor and say, you got kids? Because all you parents know exactly what you do. You have child labor in your house. I'm not even going to lie. My yard gets mowed through child labor, right? My bathroom gets cleaned through child labor. I'm sorry, we call it chores. But whatever you want to call it is good with me because, you know, the younglings are good for stuff like that. And if we're in control, our sin nature is going to say, you're going to serve me. You're going to serve me. You're going to serve me. Now, I know that good parents, really, we're trying to teach them, right? We're trying to teach them, prepare them for adulthood. Of course, I'm jo- so I'm joking about some of that. But, but seriously, if we're in control, we don't serve others. Jesus says, I'm in control, but I came to serve. Oh, and by the way, I'm God. I'm the son of man. Now, what's he quoting? Well, he's quoting Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. Let's take a look at that real quick. Daniel says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. So Daniel says, I see the son of man. I see the son of man. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Now, look, what he, look how he describes the Son of Man. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all nations and peoples. Now, the word nation here would act, could actually be better translated. Not, it's not nations like countries. It's ethnos. It's ethnic groups. So all ethnic groups and all peoples of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He's describing the Son of Man. And he says, his kingdom will never be destroyed. He has all power, all glory. He has everything in his control. And Jesus walks on the scene and goes, I'm the Son of Man. (laughs) Right? I mean, come on now. Jesus, really? Seriously? I mean, even his own uh, stepbrother, James, didn't even believe him until after the resurrection. I mean, his own siblings didn't even believe it. And some day in the future when we get time, I'll pull that out of the New Testament where they actually sarcastically make fun of him in the New Testament. Hey, if you're really a son of God, why don't you go do this stuff publicly? Right? That's what they tell him. And so <clears throat> here is Jesus, and he says, I'm the Son of Man, all power, all glory. Everything has been ascribed to me. Listen, that doesn't fall lightly on the ears of a, of a Jewish culture who knows the Scripture, who is going to to the temple at 3 o'clock every day to hear the Bible read to them every day at 3 o'clock. And then on the Sabbath, they go for an extended time. They know the Bible. They know exactly what it says. The common citizen knows what it says because they're at temple every day at 3 o'clock. They know what it says. So when Jesus walks on the scene and says, this is me, they know it. And Jesus used this term, son of man, he used it 78 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He uses it 78 times. Jesus knows full well what he's claiming. 
right? He's claiming divinity. I am divine. I am God. And in Jewish culture, when you put yourself on the same plane as God, it's not good because Jewish law says you are to be stoned to death. I don't know why it seems like every law in Judaism says you should be stoned to death. They must have a thing for throwing rocks. Like in their culture, like the, the parents must tell their kids, hey, pick up the rock and throw it because when you're an adult, you're going to do this a lot. I, I don't know what it is, but <clears throat> to claim equality with God is to be stoned to death. In fact, the Bible even says at one point when Jesus says, I am the son of man, the Bible says that the crowd pushed him to the edge of the cliff and they all picked up rocks to throw it at him. But then in an amazing Jesus moment, the Bible says, Jesus just calmly walked through the hundreds of them. Like, you're not going to touch me. And walked through them. Right? And so... He's claiming divinity. He claims divinity in a different form, too. He says, I am. He refers to himself as I am. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So Moses is in front of the burning bush. He says, who am I going to say sent me to them? What can I say? And God says, I am has sent you. Tell them that I am has sent you. And so every Jewish child growing up has to memorize the Torah, has to memorize the first five books of the Bible by the time of the age of eight years old. You have to have the first five books of the Bible memorized word for word by the time you're eight years old. So not only now is Jesus using the term I am, and not only would the religious people know, every person who is Jewish in Israel and in Jerusalem is going to know when he says, I am, he's referring to himself as God. There is no denying this in this culture. You can't <clears throat> get around it. And so in John eight fifty eight, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham ever existed, I existed. Now, you're either going to get this person to a psychiatrist and get them some heavy drugs, or you're going to call the paddy wagon and the straitjacket because this person walks around thinking they're God. Right? I mean, suddenly, imagine one day if your kid came home and said, I was out on the playground, and all the kids started surrounding me, and, and, and... we, they lost all the balls at recess, and so I just created a couple of balls and gave them to the kids and let them start playing. Mom, I am. I'm God. What's the first thing you're going to do to your kid? You're probably going to be like, um, Johnny, now listen. You've always had a vivid imagination, but you should really stop, right? <clears throat> you're going to try to suppress this thing. You'll be like, don't do that, Johnny. Stop. It's not... <clears throat> And at points when you read the Gospels, you even see the disciples concerned for him, like, Jesus, look, <laughs> calm down, right? The crowds aren't cool with this anymore. This whole playing God thing was good for a while, Jesus. It's not working out so well right now, right? Like, they want to kill you. Like, just a few days ago, they pushed you to the edge of the cliff, picked up rocks, and were to throw them at you, and now you're walking around saying, I am? You can't do Stop that. Just stop. Right? But here's what Jesus is saying. He goes, I existed before time, 
I exist during time, and when time is over, I'll still exist. This is amazing. Because I want you to think about this. As I said last week, we sit in this aquarium called time. You and I are like fish in an aquarium. We can't get outside of it. God sits outside of the aquarium, much like you and I sit outside of an aquarium. And we can see the fish, and we can see what they do. We can put things in the aquarium, take things out of the aquarium. We can adjust stuff in the aquarium. God can do the same thing in our lives. God does the same thing in our lives. And so even though, right, even though it might be your first time going through a difficult experience, maybe, maybe you're going through a divorce or maybe you're struggling with an issue with your child at school or whatever it is that you're struggling with, maybe, maybe money is tight. God says, listen, I saw all of this happen before I ever created you. And so while it's your first time going through it, it's like my second, third, fourth, or fifth time going through it, going through it with you. And I want you to know that it's going to be okay that I'm going through it with you because I sit outside of time and I, I saw this happening in your dimension of time. I saw it happening thousands and thousands of years ago. But it's okay. I've already been there. I've already, you know that difficult, that difficult discussion you may have to have with the principal of your school because of your child? Jesus, is, God, the Holy Spirit is like, this is the third time I've sat through this discussion. It's going to be okay. It's not that hard. You're making it harder by worrying and being anxious and being concerned and scared. And he goes, you're making it more difficult than it is. I've already sat through it. And so I want to encourage you this morning that whatever you're going through, understand that God's already been through it. He's already seen it. He's already sat there with you in it. And he's like, this is, it's hard for you because you don't know the outcome. But if you trust me, I know the outcome. Trust me. I sit through it with you. I'm in it with you. I go through it with you. He goes, I exist before time, during time, and after time. <clears throat> and so Jesus continues to make these quotes about himself. I'm the son of man. I am. He, he continues over and over and over again. And I'm just going to point out those two, but there's hundreds of them. And I love what H.R. McIntosh, a Scottish theologian, he says this. He says, the self-consciousness of Jesus is the greatest fact in history. The self-consciousness, self-awareness of who Jesus, knowing Jesus, knowing who he was, what he was about, is the single greatest fact in history. Because we all know that we got to die, but Jesus was born intentionally to die. How many of you were born and then went, all right, I'm going to die. I'm going to live my life for my death. Nobody does that. Jesus did. I was born intentionally so that I could die for you. His self-awareness, his, self-conf- uh, his self-consciousness is huge. So, sorry, I'm struggling with a little allergies this morning. So, Kevin Van Hooser, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, he said this. this is, listen to this. Read it on the screen with me. Listen to this and let this soak in. Think about this for a minute. Jesus understood himself to be the beloved son of God, chosen by God to bring about the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of our sins. Our understanding of who Jesus was must correspond to Jesus' own self-understanding. If we do not confess Jesus as the Christ, then either he was deluded about his identity or we are. Jesus is either confused and deluded about his own identity, or you and I are deluded and confused. 
We either get on the same page with Jesus or we're not on the same page with Jesus. Because like I said before, good moral people don't make claims about themselves that aren't true. Well, Jesus was just a good man. He existed. He lived. But that's about the extent of it. Good people don't lie and deceive millions and millions and millions of people through the eons of time. They don't do that. Nor do they confuse hundreds around them. They don't do that. Right? So, if we know Jesus existed, and we know that he was the Son of God, then that leaves us with the next question. And the question that I'm going to close with this morning. Did he rise from the dead? What evidence do we have that he rose from the dead? That he was in that tomb for three days, and he came out of it. Because you see, all of history hinges on this. Think about, think about this. Where, where did colleges and universities start? Christianity, the desire to understand God's world through science. Where did hospitals start? Christianity, to help those in need. Where did orphanages start? Christianity, to help those that are less fortunate. Where did, where did food pantries and feeding the hungry start? Christianity. Where did exploration and discovery start? Christianity. Right? I mean, when you stop and you begin to think about the impact of Jesus on humanity, it's huge. It's more than any one person could ever do. Right? And so, if he is the Son of God, did he rise from the dead? Well, one of the things that we do is you go back to this book because we understand from last week that it is extremely reliable. It is 99.9% accurate in what it says. We know that, right? So we know that. So we just go back to this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 3 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says this. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Now why, let me pause right there, why would Paul say that the most of the men and women of that 500 or more group that he appeared to, why would he say that some of them, most of them are still living? Why would he say that? It's a reference point. If you don't believe me, let me know, and I will start giving you names because most of them are still alive. That's why when you read the New Testament and you read it and it puts names, so-and-so went to the grave, so-and-so said this, so-and-so... Because as they were writing this, these people were still alive. And if you didn't believe them, you could go back and talk to them. There was a reference point. Though some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to the abnormally born. Now Paul was talking about his spiritual birth. Because he didn't, Paul never considered himself equal with 
the original 12 disciples. <clears throat> so so I'm, I'm the abnormal one. You guys consider me a disciple, but I'm abnormal because I really didn't walk with Jesus. And my conversion was a little different. <coughs> but let me ask you something. If you're a lawyer in a courtroom and you're trying to persecute or um, you're trying to put someone behind bars and saying they're guilty and prove their guilt, right? And the defendant has 500 witnesses or more. Is that going to play to your favor? If you are the defendant and somebody's trying to accuse you of something and you're like, yeah, but go back to this day because I had over 500 witnesses that says I was right here. Is it looking good for you? Yeah. There's not a single lawyer that's going to try a case if the defendant has over 500 witnesses to prove that they existed after the point of death, right? And so Paul says, we have over 500 witnesses of this event on top of all of these other people. He goes, and if you want, I'll start giving you names. I'll just start telling, you can go talk to them. Some of them have died, but a lot, the majority of them still are still alive. Go talk to them. <clears throat> And one of the things that I mentioned last week, he says men and women. This is one of the other things that Christianity did early on. Jesus even did it when talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Christianity elevated the status of women faster than any other world religion. Because like I said last week, now, <laughs> and like I said last week, don't throw stuff at me, okay? But in that culture, women were not considered reliable sources, Okay? In fact, women were considered so unreliable, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. And yet, all of Christianity hinges on two women going to a tomb, coming back and telling the men he's not there. Now, if I'm writing a story, I don't start with people in our society that aren't reputable, or our society doesn't count them as witnesses, you know what that does to these two women? It immediately elevates their status. It says, no, 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 they're, they're just as much a witness as men are. They can witness things and experience things just as much as men can. You don't start writing a story with people in your culture. You don't start that with people who aren't considered credible. You just wouldn't, right? In fact, William Craig, who's a theologian and an analytic philosopher, he said this. He said, talking about them writing and using women in Scripture and treating women and talking about women as equal, this would have been embarrassing for the disciples to admit and most certainly would have been covered up if this were a legend. In other words, he says, if they're just writing a story, they're not going to put women on the same plane as men. It's just culturally, it wouldn't even have crossed their mind. But they do, <clears throat> right? He said, so this is another evidential fact of the resurrection, because you should have put in, like, men who had status and who had, you know, men who had money or men who had power. You would put them in as recognizing Jesus as being risen from the dead, not people who aren't even allowed to speak in court. Right? So, anyway, <clears throat> there you go. Please don't get offended by that. I'm just telling you what was, culture was like in that day <laughs> 2,000 years ago. So let's take a look at, let's just take a look. We're going to wrap this up, but we're going to take a look at two, two, um, <clears throat> Theories that opponents of the resurrection use. Now, there are mul multiple, but I took two that are pretty popular. One is this. One says it was an apparent death theory. He didn't really die on the cross. 
they took him down before he actually died. Now, to that, I would say then you have to go back to the Journal of American Medical Association. Because the Journal of American Medical Association did an article on the death of Jesus Christ. And they interviewed, and they had three doctors and one pathologist from the Mayo Clinic. And this is what they wrote in regards to the crucifixion of Jesus. They said this, clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right rib probably perforated not only the right lung but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. In other words, modern medicine, written by three doctors and a pathologist from Mayo Clinic, said it is clinically impossible to have survived what he went through on the cross. Impossible. Impossible. Right? Think about this for a minute. If he would have survived, though so severely beaten and so severely flogged, they're going to embalm him. The embalming ritual includes 75 pounds of myrrh, oil, um, cloth. So not only is he bleeding profusely, bones broken, ribs, uh, punctured lungs, and so on, now he's got to lay there for three days with 75 pounds pressing down on him of oil and myrrh and cloth? He's not surviving. Nobody's surviving that. Nobody. Right? So the apparent death theory, not, not even probable. The second theory is this. The disciples stole the body. They just stole it, and then they started writing all of this stuff to get everybody to follow it, to, you know, to create this movement. Right. Okay, so you're telling me that 12, we'll call them fishermen, who for the most part are illiterate um, and could have stayed and owned their own business, They're writing all of this and making all of this up to be ostracized from society, to be martyred, to be beaten, to be tortured. They stole the body for that reason? Which one of you in this room are going to do that and get treated like that on purpose? Anybody? Let me see your hand if you want to do that. Yeah, nobody. So the whole, they stole their body? Not even plausible. And I don't even have time to go into all the other reasons why this isn't even plausible. It just makes no sense. <clears throat> in fact, in, ni- in, 1878, in 1878, archaeologists found a marble slab in Nazareth. In 1878, they found a slab in Nazareth that read this. Ordinance of Caesar. <clears throat> it is my pleasure that graves and tombs remain perpetually undisturbed for those who have been made for the cult of their ancestors or children or members of their house. If, however... Anyone charges that another has either demolished them or has in any other way extracted the buried and has maliciously transferred them to the other places in order to wrong them or has displaced the ceiling on other stones against such a one I order a trial be instituted as in respect of the gods, so in regard to the cult of the mortals. For it shall be much more obligatory to honor the buried. Let it be absolutely forbidden for anyone to disturb them. In case of violation, I desire the offender be sentenced to capital punishment on charge of violation of the sepulcher. The president himself says, 
issues a decree. It's in Nazareth and says, if you touch this, there will be a trial and the punishment is capital punishment if you're found guilty. Capital punishment. Now, which one of those scared 12 are going to go steal a body and risk capital punishment? Anybody in this room willing to risk that? Yeah, they're probably not either. Oh, by the way, when was this decreed? This was placed, they believe it was placed in Nazareth the same time Jesus was alive. This, this issue, this edict was decreed while Jesus was alive. And it would have gone all over the Roman Empire. You touch a body out of the grave, capital punishment. <laughs> Nobody's going to risk that, right? <clears throat> there is one and only one single event in human history that defies everything humanity has ever known. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if he was who he said he was and did the things that we know he did, and he said, and you, you destroy this, and in three days I'll bring it back. And he does that. Now you and I have a decision to make. He either is who he says he is, or you and I just simply want to live in defiance of it. What do you do with that? I tell you what I do with it. I get in line with it. Because any man that can prophetically beat death on his own, I want to live for that guy, right? I want to be on that guy's side. And I want to encourage you today to think about that. As I close out with this, I just want to read um, these two paragraphs from um, something called The Solitary Man. This is from a sermon from 1923. This pastor wrote this. And I'm just going to read the last two paragraphs of his sermon. But he said this. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is a centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has the one of solitary life. Jesus never wrote a book. Jesus never traveled more than 200 miles away from his birthplace. And yet, not one single person has ever affected the human race more than Jesus. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, nobody. And so my question for you this morning is this. Will you bring your life in alignment with Jesus or will you continue to fight it? Will you continue to deny it? That option is up to you. Would you stand up this morning? I believe that somebody in this room probably has been fighting the evidence of Jesus Christ. And and listen, I, I, I could spend a year's worth of Sundays just on the evidence of Jesus alone. It's not about the evidence. It's about belief. What do you believe? Everybody believes something. The atheists even believe. Everybody believes. I don't have time to get into a philosophical debate of where does belief come from. But I'll tell you this. Everybody has belief, and it comes from somewhere. Where are you going to place yours? Will it be placed in Jesus or will be placed elsewhere. This morning as we close out in song, I want to invite you. 
I want to invite you to consider your relationship with Christ this morning. If you need prayer for anything, I'm going to ask Lynn and Jesse to come down here and on, on this side, and I'm going to ask <clears throat> Steve and Aaron to come down here on this side. And if you're here this morning, you need prayer or, or anything as we close out in song, I want you to come forward. And if you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, say, Jesus, forgive me for fighting you. Forgive me for doubting you. And you want to make that decision for yourself, I want to invite you to do that this morning as we sing out.